Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 1. Psalm 1. We're going to read the whole psalm. Before we take that reading, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your holy word, the scriptures, and we pray, Father, that our hearts would be made ready to receive these words for exactly what they are, the very words of God. May we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that understand and are obedient. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Our God, the one true living God, the God who has spoken to us from the scriptures, is a God who both unites and divides. He's in the business of uniting his people into one people. He's in the business of making many nations one nation in Christ. He's in the business of in a way, in a manner of speaking, driving out distinctions when it comes to his people. And so we can find, for example, the book of Galatians that the Apostle Paul speaks of there being no male nor female, no slave nor free, no Greek nor Jew, etc., etc. He's in the business of uniting his people in Christ. But he's also in the business of dividing mankind. He's in the business of separating his people from those who are not his people. And we find this from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. Think about what we read in Genesis chapter 3. And there was a division made there, a distinction. There was the seed of the serpent. There was the seed of the woman. And there was an ongoing battle between these distinct peoples. There was enmity. And the promise was that ultimately the seed of the woman, which we would call the church, the body of Christ, ultimately the seed of the woman would be victorious. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read it, chapter 25, I think it was, chapter 25, we read of the sheep and the goats. And we read of the Lord Jesus himself speaking of making a distinction, separating the sheep from the goats. The sheep were obviously those whom he considered to be his people. They're the same people. They're the seed of the woman. They're the people upon whom he has set his favour. They're the people who are blessed. The seed of the woman are the sheep. And the goats are the seed of the serpent. And when you come to the book of Revelation and its repeated scenes of judgment, You find the distinctions expressed in different ways, but basically it's a division between the righteous and the wicked, between those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life 
from the beginning of time or before the beginning of time and those whose deeds are written in the records of God and their deeds are to be judged. There's this division. We've gone in the introduction from Genesis to Revelation and seen that God is making a division and, well, as we drop into Psalm 1, we're getting pretty close to the centre of the Bible. It's the beginning of God's song and prayer book and what do we find that Psalm 1 is telling us? Other than that, God makes division. Blessed is the man, blessed, happy. The favour of God rests upon this man. He's blessed. He is in a happy state. Now, this man might be blessed sitting in prison. I read a book recently of a persecuted Christian. He ended up in the Russian gulags. He thanked God for the prison. He thanked God for the prison because in the prison he was truly and deeply converted. He was saved. And he realised that all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the evil, all of the wickedness that he saw all around about him was used by God to break down his own human pride and bring him to eternal life. Okay, blessed does not mean in a good earthly situation. Sometimes it does. All right? Sometimes God blesses our worldly undertakings. He blesses our business. He blesses our farm. He blesses our families. Sometimes he puts us in hardship, in tough times. That's usually to make us grow. That's usually to make us grow. If faith is a muscle, well, then hardship is the gym where we work out the muscle of faith. We strengthen it. We build it up. But if we are in Christ, we are in this state of blessedness. God is making all things work together for our good. Everything. The loss, the suffering, the pain, the debates, the arguments. God makes all things work together for our good. A person very close to me, a person very close to me, some of you already know this, in the last days of cancer, it's out of control. It's going to take her life. She repented. She's put her faith in the Lord. For 30 years I've prayed for her. She repented. God laid his blessing upon her in her time of suffering. Praise God. Praise God. Blessed. There's a blessed man and Psalm 1 tells us there's a wicked man. There's actually, we're given the idea that there is one man who is particularly blessed. And yet as we come down to verse 5, we find that this lesson concerning one exemplary man is a lesson that applies to the great mass of people. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. We go from the singular to the plural. So we're looking at an example, and when we look at that example, we will find that that example gives us teaching and wisdom that can be applied to the many, to the wider picture. Blessed is the man. Now, I want to point out something here. This man has a source of knowledge. He has a source of understanding. He has a particular world view. He's not like the other men. Blessed is the man. Now, notice that this man is, um, 
He's avoiding getting stuck in something. First of all, he walks not in the counsel of the wicked. To walk not in the counsel of the wicked is to not take your advice from wicked people. The counsel of the wicked is to be led by wicked people, to be influenced by wicked people. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So what's the picture of a person here? Well, concerning the wicked, it's the picture of a heart being hardened. They search, they come to something that they love, they stop there and then eventually they establish themselves there and they sit there and there they want to stay. That's a man in love with his sin or a woman in love with her sin. That's someone who just wants something so badly that they set their heart upon that thing and they will not go elsewhere. They walk to it. They stand there, they enthrone themselves, as it were, upon it. They sit themselves there, their heart is hardened. That's the descent of the wicked. But notice this man who is blessed. He walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He's not searching for anything evil. He's not searching for wickedness. You know, do you have a secret desire of sin that you think nobody else knows about? I'm not saying I know about it, I probably don't. But God himself knows about it. You know, I've heard people say, for example, look, I would never commit adultery, but if I met such and such, and then they usually reel off the name of some superstar, some movie star, some singer, whatever, the wedding ring goes out the window at that moment. So they want to walk to some supposed superstar's place. They want to stand there and ultimately they want to stay there. This supposed desire, that's not for the blessed man. He doesn't take his information from the world. He doesn't draw his wisdom from the world. Have have any of you heard of a guy, his name is Jordan B. Peterson? Jordan B. Peterson. He's a very, very intelligent man. And when you listen to what he's got to say, he appears to be on a spiritual journey. Okay, and I don't claim to know where he's at in that. I, you know, I've never met the man. thousand kilometres, million kilometres away from me. I've got nothing to do with him. But I listen to some of the things he has to say. Okay, very, very intelligent man. At the moment, his approach to the world is this. He's trying to find a way to make his knowledge of God fit in with his secular worldview. He has a highly educated, deeply secular worldview. He's a very intelligent man. And he has found that the only possible way that he can truly and honestly understand anything is with the knowledge of God in there as a guide to that which is true and correct. And so, as far as I can tell from what I hear of him and what I've heard of his things, and I I do listen to some of the things he has to say, he's trying to make this knowledge of God fit in with his secular worldview. He's got it upside down. What should he be doing? What will he be doing if God humbles his heart? What will he be doing if he truly comes into the grace and the love of God? 
He will make his worldly knowledge fit into his godly worldview. He will take the scriptures as his guide. He will not take the counsel of the wicked. He will not take the counsel of unbelievers. Now, am I saying that an unbeliever could know nothing? No, I'm not. Okay, an unbeliever can study science. An unbeliever can make great discoveries. An unbeliever can do good work. Okay, if the best surgeon in town is an atheist and I need a delicate operation, I'll let the atheist conduct the delicate operation. In terms of hard science, in in terms of hard knowledge, an honest atheist can do just as well as an honest Christian. But in terms of worldview, in terms of truly understanding categories like righteousness and wickedness, goodness and evil, in terms of truly understanding the purpose for which we are in the world, you know, those, those big questions, why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? Where am I supposed to be going? They've got no idea. None whatsoever. And for all their education, they've got nothing to offer. What you need to do is you need to come to all of their knowledge and all of that, you know, in a way, my friends, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants in one way or another. All the things that we take for granted, electricity, running water, cars that work, you know, the, the other day I was, I was just, I, um, I pulled apart something on our property and I was looking literally at the screw that I'd taken out of the piece of wood that was holding something together. And I thought, you know what? There's thousands of years of development in this thing. You know, the machine that finally turned these out by the hundreds, thousands, even millions, that didn't happen overnight. Incrementally. Mankind gained the knowledge to manufacture this very useful thing over thousands of years. And it was only in like the mid-1800s that we then were able to pull together factories that could fabricate these useless, useful, I didn't mean useless, I meant useful things in their thousands and millions and get them out to people in a form that they could afford to have them to build good things with them. Mankind, mankind can learn things that are true. Mankind can learn things that are true. But mankind cannot interpret the things that are true unless mankind comes to those things from God's word. Why is science what it is? Because God created it. Why do the laws of science work? Because God created them. God set them in place. It's God who made the human body the way it is. It's God who upholds his laws. The things that we rely on, the things that we know are going to work, it's because God set those laws in place. That's why we give God the glory for all good things. Even if that atheist doctor conducted a successful operation upon me, I would not give him the glory. I would thank him for his services or her. I'd give God the glory. I would give God the glory that he made mankind able to do these things. The righteous man does not draw his knowledge from the same stream as the wicked man. Look at verse 2. The righteous man delights in the law of the Lord. Now we can stop here and think carefully about this law. The word could possibly be translated the instructions or the commandments. 
Law can mean different things in the scripture. Okay, sometimes the law is what we call the Ten Commandments. That's the law that was written with the finger of God. That's the law that in the book of 2 Corinthians we're told is written on the heart of man. The Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. Sometimes law can mean all of scripture. Turn to the law and find it for me. That person means turn to the scripture. Sometimes the Apostle Paul speaks of law as in the same way that a scientist speaks of law. When a scientist speaks of law, they're saying that a thesis has been proven by repeated experiments again and again and again. This statement is always true. And the Apostle Paul speaks of the law of sin working in his body. I want to do right, but I have fighting within me, desires for sin. And I find he said that that's a law. He means in all people, in all of humanity, that's a law. And it's proven again and again and again. His delight is in the law of the Lord. I think it's in all of the scriptures, in the word of God that has been given to us. His delight is in God's word. He loves the word of God. What's his source? Is it the counsel of the wicked? Or is it the very words of God? His delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. So this man, this blessed righteous man, everything he sees, everything he does, everything he hears, it's compared to the word of God. It's understood in the light of the word of God. It's applied according to the righteousness of the word of God. This is his framework. This is the way he uses his mind. He fills it with the word of God and then everything else is under the word of God. All things. His delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. My friends, what's happening here right now? Well, you say we're sitting in a church and we're looking at you and you're doing your best to preach. That's right. It's exactly what's happening here right now. What's happening out there in the world every time you turn on the news, the current affairs, a movie, the radio, your favourite song, whatever it is? Well, they're preaching to you. They're preaching to you. They're telling you how you ought to think, how you ought to behave. And it's not the same way that I'm telling you, at least not for 99.9% of them, that's for sure. What are the movies telling you? These things that are watched by millions and millions of people. Follow your heart. Do whatever makes you happy. Life is short. Eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow we may die. Do anything. Nothing matters except the pleasure of the moment. You're being preached to. It's coming to you constantly. It's just as well that God told us to set aside one day in seven to sit under the word of his God, under his word. But we need more than that, don't we? I mean, it's good to be here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad it's being recorded. I'm glad it's going to go on the internet. It's good that you're here. I thank God for that. But my friends, day and night, I can't preach to you day and night. I'll preach twice today. At the end of it, I'll be wanting a cup of tea. My throat will be rough. I'll be pretty tired. You need it day and night. 
You need the word of the Lord day and night. You need to be studying it, meditating upon it, even memorising it, imposing some kind of discipline upon yourself. Studying it hard. Thinking deeply. Letting it change you. Because this is the word of God and this is the truth. And you let this truth guide your every thought, decision and footstep. That's what the word of God is supposed to do for us and to us and in us and through us. What preaching are we listening to? I mean, what preaching are we listening to? And do you turn the rubbish off when you hear it? That's something that we could do. It's something we ought to do at least some of the time. Do you turn the rubbish off when you hear it? Or do you just soak it up? What are you meditating upon day and night? When I was first converted, I was a serious heavy metal fan. This is back in late 80s. Favourite bands, if you know anything of heavy metal. Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath. At that time, they were the heaviest, they were the nastiest, they were the wickedest. I didn't listen to any music for three years. Why? Because I realised that everything they were saying was set against the word of God. And if the words of those songs were in continuous repeat play in my mind, how could it be possible that the word of God was taking dominance in my mind? And so I just didn't listen to anything. If I listened to anything, it was classical music or hymnody. I listened to recorded hymns. It took three years. It took three years to get that muck out of my mind. That my mind no longer turned over according to that music and those lyrics were no longer running constantly as a stream through my head. But eventually I realised, hey, it's gone. I've forgotten about it. I could walk through a shopping centre right past what we used to call the record store where music was played and people would go in and buy records and CDs. Right? We didn't download it then. And you'd hear someone blasting something out through the speakers. And as soon as it was out of earshot, it was no longer in my head. My friends, we've got to get the word of God on constant replay in our mind. Constant repeat. One part or another, one bit or another. Study, my friends, the scripture. Repetition. Okay. Plough. What do I mean when I say plough? If you've worked on a farm and you have to plough, whether and I'm talking about on tractor, I've never gone behind a horse drawn or an ox drawn plough. But if you've worked on a farm and you've had to plough, what you're doing is you're basically sitting on this big cumbersome machine that works, that's moving at about 5 to 10 kilometres per hour and all you're doing is making sure that the line over there matches up with the line that you left the last time. All day long, sometimes all night long. You know, I got given a job one day by my boss. He said, um, I said, what am I doing? He said, jump on the tractor, get the offset discs. I want you to go up and plough or start ploughing. What? No, what? Jump on the tractor, get the offset discs, go up and plough the first cut on the back paddock. And what he meant by that was the first time around. I said, what else am I doing for the day? He said, no, mate, 
You don't know how big that field is. One time around will take you all day. Take your lunch, take some water. Okay, don't come back till you've done the first time around. Sure enough, up up the back I go. Nine and a half hours later, I've finished the first circuit of the field. It was important. Why was it important? Because now the guys on night shift had a clear line to follow in the headlights of the tractor. So someone else could get on the tractor now and plough right through the night. And slowly but surely you get this massive big field prepared for sowing wheat. The word of God, plough, plough. Constant, steady, routine study. Constant, steady, routine study. And here's the thing, is you prepare ground for sowing, at least in some soil types. You go over the same ground more than once. You hit it with one machine and then you hit it with another machine. And then it's ready for sowing and then you've got to go over it with the sowing machine, with the machine that sows. And then once you've sown the seed, you go over it with a set of harrows, at least back in the day. I know they've got better machinery and better tractors these days. But you end up going over the same, the same plot of ground. You just keep running over it till it's ready. <coughs> when it comes to the word of God, my friends, plough. Be systematic. Be constant. Be steady. Be disciplined. Go over the same ground again and again and again, slowly but surely you build up this biblical worldview. You build up this picture of all of Scripture. Try and use the same Bible all the time. I don't mind electronic versions of the Scripture, by the way. I don't mind them. I use them. You've seen me use it here when I preach. But you don't know the number of times that I turn someone to a particular passage and I'm actually going on the physical guides. I say to you, I want you to turn to the book of Colossians and you turn to Colossians and it's Colossians chapter 3 and we get to Colossians chapter 3 and then I look at a particular page. I know what I want is in the right-hand column a third of the way down. I didn't know what verse it was, but I've read Colossians that many times that I knew where to find it in this Bible. And so I was able to get you there while you're following me. I'm There it is. It's right there. Plow. Just keep ploughing, my friends. Keep going over the ground. Build up a picture. Build up a biblical picture of life, the world, creation. Just keep doing it. It's part of the process of our sanctification, by the way. The ongoing changing or transforming of people who are not, by nature, godly. That's what we are apart from conversion. We're we're at enmity with God. We're sinners. We're wicked. We don't love God. When we're converted, when we're brought into the kingdom, we want to be godly. We want to be like Christ. We want to follow after Christ. Well, was Jesus ever lacking in a scripture reference when he needed one? No. And my friends, Bible knowledge in the book of 1 Corinthians, as far as I'm aware, is not given as a gift of the spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means if you want to get it, you have to work for it. You have to study. Get stuck in. Plow. The blessed man draws his knowledge, his worldview, his understanding. He draws all of these things from the scripture, not from the pope, not from the world around him, not from the world around him. You know, for, for so many people who, as Christians, feel that something's not right, I'm having so much trouble, things aren't working out. I don't understand what's going on here. For so many people who are having those thoughts, 
A lot of the time it's simply this. You're not looking through the lens of Scripture. You're not looking at this problem through the lens of Scripture. You're not asking the right questions and you're not expecting the right answers. So you need, my friends, to meditate day and night on the word of the Lord. And then at verse 3, we're given an illustration or a metaphor. This blessed man becomes like a tree planted by streams of water. The idea here is that the tree can get its roots down to the water table. It's, never, it's not going to need extra irrigation. You're not going to need to add extra water to it. It's got its roots down into the water source. And that tree yields its fruit in its season. Stop and think now. This blessed man, like the tree planted by streams of water, it's guaranteed that there will be fruit. It's guaranteed that there will be fruit. This life of obedience, this life of blessedness, it will be fruitful. But it says there's a season. It says there's a season. Sometimes ploughing is a long way separated from harvesting. Our life is guaranteed in Christ to be fruitful. It is guaranteed to be fruitful. But there are seasons And sometimes the land lays fallow. You don't work it up. You give it a rest. You give it a break. There are seasons, my friends. It doesn't say it will yield its fruit 12 months of the year. It says it will yield its fruit in its season. In other words, this man will be what God has intended him to be will be productive as God has intended him to be. This woman will be the woman that God has intended her to be. There will be fruit in God's good timing. It's not saying, therefore, that the leaves might not fall off over winter. I mean, it says its leaf does not wither. I think that's a picture for death. The tree's not going to die. If it's a seasonal tree, it will lose its leaves for a period of time its leaf does not wither the tree's not going to die in all that he does he prospers now in all that he does he prospers does that mean he makes money every step of the way and the answer is no remember we read a similar thing in romans chapter 8 just turn to it for a moment and view it romans chapter 8 verse 28 and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we know for those who love God that all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things are good. Is that what it's saying? No. That's not what it's saying, is it? It's saying that through Christ's mediation, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, all things are made to do we who are in Christ good. Sometimes it's good to fall. Sometimes it's good to stumble. Sometimes it's good to suffer a beating. Sometimes it's good to suffer sickness. Sometimes it's good to fail. 
Sometimes it's good to undergo hardship. Sometimes it's good to have someone do something particularly nasty to you. Sometimes the crisis of unpleasant Christians treating you badly might be one of the best things that ever happened to you. In one way or another, God might make that work for good. All things are for good. In all that this righteous man does, he prospers. Verse 4, but the wicked are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. The chaff that the wind drives away. In other words, in the, in the process, in the old-fashioned process of beating out the grain, it's being tossed up into the air, into the breeze. The wind blows across it. That which is not wanted is lighter than the grain. It blows away. That's the chaff. No one cares where the chaff goes. No one cares what happens to the chaff. No one's even remotely interested. You didn't grow the crop for this chaff, for this stuff that blows away from the grain. You grew the crop for the grain. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That's interesting. Verse 5, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. We told in the book of Romans about judging another man's servant. We're told we're not to judge another man's servant. In the context, Paul is speaking of another Christian and saying that that Christian is God's Christian. And he says, because in the eyes of his own master, he will stand or fall and indeed he will be made to stand. Indeed, he will be made to stand. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. So let's stop again and think. We notice back at verse 1 that there were wicked people and they stand in the way of sinners. But notice that the righteous are seeking to stand also. You see, in a way, what we're looking at here is trajectory or direction. It's not that the righteous doesn't walk. It's that he doesn't walk in the same way as sinners. It's not that he doesn't want to stand It's that he doesn't want to stand in the congregation of the sinners. He wants to stand in the congregation of the righteous. It's not that he doesn't want to take his seat. It's that he doesn't want to sit in the midst of wickedness. He wants to sit at the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's the seat that we want. In the very presence of God, in the very place of all blessing. Rejoicing in God's goodness and grace and mercy. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What was Christianity called? What was one of its names before it eventually became Christianity or Christians in the book of Acts? This sect that has been called the way. The way, we're in the way. Think of how many times in the book of Isaiah we're told that there's going to be a way of holiness, the highway of holiness and the righteous will walk along it. The way. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord cares for, the Lord upholds, the Lord leads, the Lord strengthens. The Lord makes division. 
The Lord makes separation. It starts now. It already happens. There's a way of the righteous. There's a way of the wicked. It's upon this earth. And remember, the way of the righteous is the narrow way. Few enter in by it. The way of the wicked is the easy way. You don't have to do anything to remain in the way of the wicked. We were born in it. It's the easy way. It's a wide road and it runs downhill. Doesn't have many bumps along the way. You can have a happy life and go straight to hell. That's the way of the wicked. It's the easy way. But there's a way of the righteous. So just going back now and thinking this through. There's an exemplary blessed man. And he's righteous. And he does that which is right. And he's pleasing in the sight of God. And he's blessed by God. And there are wicked men who will not stand in the judgment. We've got to ask a question now. It's time to see where the division is. Are you righteous? I'm hoping you're thinking I'm not. Okay, we don't have our own righteousness to boast about, do we? You know, we just don't have it. We don't have that which stands in the presence of God. We don't have that which will survive the fire of God. The Apostle Paul said, I know that no good thing dwells within me, that is, within my flesh. We don't have our own righteousness. We're not born from our mother's womb in the way of righteousness. I spoke of one of those divisions being in Adam or in Christ, or did I forget to mention that one? I might have forgotten that one. For example, in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul speaks of God's division as being those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Born in Adam, our natural father by natural descent through the generations, born in Adam, the sinner. Not having righteousness of our own, not having that which we need. Born in Adam. I'm not the exemplary blessed man. And scripture assures me that neither are you. We don't have the righteousness. We're in trouble. We've got a problem. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. How many years have I spent of my life wasted walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of scoffers? When my wife met me, I told her I was an atheist. We don't have our own righteousness. And it doesn't matter what you do with something that's filthy. You'll never forget that it was filthy. Our heart, our hearts, the very, the very seat of our desires in terms of our natural birth. It's not good. From the heart come all forms of wickedness and adultery. From the heart comes the words that poison and stain. We don't have our own righteousness. You would think we're in trouble. You would think we're in trouble, and we are. Outside of Christ, we are most certainly in trouble. Outside of Christ, we are most certainly not blessed men. 
If you've still got a finger or a thumb at Romans chapter 8, notice something. There's another division here in Romans chapter 8, closer to the start of the chapter. The Apostle Paul speaks of those who are in the spirit and those who are in the flesh. It's the same division. It's the same division we've been talking about here all along. Those in the spirit, those in the flesh. Let's start at verse 1. There is therefore, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot. They have no desire to please God. Their minds are not set upon the things of the spirit. Their minds are set upon the things of the flesh. They cannot please God. They can't do what's right. They don't want to do what's right anyway. Notice they're walking. They're walking according to the flesh, not according to the spirit. Oh, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. They're walking. They cannot please God. So how does it happen, my friends? How does it happen that we could be accounted righteous and not only be accounted righteous, but given the power to do that which is righteous in the sight of God because we need it? Oh, how we need it. Psalms, Psalm 32. Psalm 32, a masculine of David. What's the first word after the title? Blessed. Blessed. This person's in the same state as the righteous person. Blessed. What does it say? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Our God is a merciful and gracious God, showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It is possible for a sinner to be blessed. It is possible for someone who is in the flesh to be counted as in the spirit. It is possible for someone who has no righteousness of their own, yet can still enter into a blessed state. There's even more about this in the Psalms. Flick it back to Psalm 1, but let's look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2, it's the psalm of the enthronement of God's Messiah upon the high hill of Zion. The one who's to make the nations his heritage And the ends of the earth, his possession, who breaks them with a rod of iron and dashes in pieces like a potter's vessel. The one who exercises the power of God. God's 
holy son, God's holy Messiah. Let's read from verse 10 of Psalm 2. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. How does it finish? Blessed. Blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge where? In him. In the judge. In the king with all power that God has set upon Zion's holy hill. Where's the place of blessing to be found? It's to be found in the refuge of the son of God who rules over all creation. Blessed. Notice the warning given to the kings, given to the rulers of the earth. And this is going now from the greater to the lesser. Think of it this way. If your king, your ruler, your leader is warned to repent, that warning applies also to you, for you are of his people. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so, my friends, we read of this man who is righteous. He is the exemplar of righteousness. He's exactly what we should want to be. He's exactly what we should desire to be. But we know that we're not like him in and of ourselves and we know that we don't have the power and the strength in and of ourselves. But we know that God is gracious and merciful, showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. We know that blessed are all who take refuge in God's son, set upon Zion, God's holy hill. We know that people are blessed whose transgressions, iniquities and sins are covered against whom the Lord counts no sin. Turn to Psalm 103. We'll start reading at verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Israel, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Verse 12. It's beautiful. It's one of those beautiful little summary statements that should always make your heart rejoice if you are in Christ. As far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Not as far as the north is from the south. There's a dot on the map that tells you where the north pole is. There's a dot on the map that tells you where the south pole is. As far as the east is from the west. A chasm. A great chasm. As far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Cleansed. Iniquity is not being imputed against us. The Lord is not counting our sins against us. What happened? How did that happen? Let's 
Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll drop into the passage at verse 16. The Apostle Paul has spoken of the love of Christ controlling the preachers of the word of God and how in Christ all are considered to have died, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Picking it up at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember in Psalm 32, David used that word imputed or counted. Measured against, compared to, marked against. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, counts no iniquity. What happened to the iniquity? Where did it go? God knows all things. You know, he doesn't just, he can't just sort of switch off part of his perfect knowledge. You know, he has this perfect, all-encompassing knowledge. And all things are present before his eyes. Our memories fade, our memories get distorted. Some things we think we remember, it turns out we forgot them, or we forgot details thereof. Not so with God's knowledge. Perfect, always utterly perfect. So, you're guilty of transgressions and sins. And God knows it. But God is seeking to offer forgiveness. God is seeking to call sinners to righteousness. God is seeking to move people from the way of the wicked to the way of the righteous. What happened with the sin? That sin that has been separated from his people as far as the east is from the west. For our sake, verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. The innocent one, the righteous one, the exemplary one, the blessed man of Psalm 1, the very one, the Lord Jesus, the one who is guilty of no sin, the one who walked perfectly in the way of the righteous, the one who meditated upon the law of God day and night and did all things according to the word of God, the one who was perfectly pleasing in God's eyes. My beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, him you shall hear. Those were the words of God, weren't they? Speaking of Jesus, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. He was counted as being guilty 
of all the sins of all the forgiven. He was counted as being guilty of all the sins of all the forgiven. Our sins were crucified in Christ. Put on public display and put to death. He carried our sins to the cross. There they died in his death. There they were separated from his people. As far as the east is from the west. But he's good and he's righteous and he's innocent. And so though he was willing to bear our guilt, he was not guilty of our guilt. He was treated as the guilty one in order that we could be treated as the righteous ones. God didn't just erase a part of God's own memory. God did something about our sin. He separated it as far as the east is from the west. He put it upon Christ, that exemplary righteous one that we want to be like. And there he put us to death. He put our sin to death. He put our wickedness to death. He put us to death in Christ. In order that we, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And what is the righteous man or the righteous woman, for that matter? The righteous one. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. The righteous man has standing in the congregation. The righteous man has forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. The righteous one counted righteous in Christ is just as blessed as Christ himself is blessed. The love with which God the Father looks upon God the Son is the love with which God the Father looks upon those who are hidden in the righteousness of God the Son. An eternal, abiding, steadfast love that will never end. Something that you and I, in a way, are not capable of, at least in and of our own strength. But God himself, by the power of his spirit, grants strength to his people. He grants righteousness to his people in Christ. And so, my friends, if you are in Christ, you are among the blessed. You are counted as being among the blessed. And God will work out his purposes in your life and you will bear your fruits in your seasons. And you will stand in the congregation of the righteous. Oh, we will fear God. It will be an awesome fear because God is almighty and all-powerful. And people like you and I don't enter into the presence of the almighty and all-powerful without getting weak at the knees. That's what we're supposed to do. But it'll be a joyful trembling. Remember, we looked at Psalm 2. Rejoice with trembling is the commandment. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We'll rejoice with trembling in the presence of our God, knowing that because we have been credited in the righteousness of Christ or with the righteousness of Christ, we stand in the congregation of the righteous. And so, my friends, I tell you, 
If you have not, you must seek forgiveness in Christ's name. If you have not come into the people of God, you must. You must take refuge in the Son. You must seek the forgiveness that is offered. There is no other way to stand in the congregation of the righteous. There is no other way to stand in the place of blessing. You must seek it through Christ. Seek the forgiveness of God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. Not only are you forgiven, but from that time on, you are strengthened and enabled to fight the battle of the righteous. To fight the battle of the righteous. Sometimes the battle will not go so well and you will stumble and you will fall. And all of this is in the grace and the providence of God. And sometimes the battle will go great, wonderfully well. And you'll know victories. You will bear your fruit in its season. And you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. So my friends, seek forgiveness in Christ's name. And if you already have it, rejoice in his goodness and in his mercy. And we'll close now in prayer. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that we, your people, would indeed walk in the way of righteousness, in the way of obedience, in the way of faithfulness. Let our hearts meditate upon the word of God day and night, that we may be more like Christ, that we may grow in our sanctification. These things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.